Hi, everyone. This is the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Steph Boye and Barry Casson. How is everyone? Hey, Danny. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm, I, you know, beautiful day on the West Coast. Thinking about Salt Spring, not there. Enjoyed the bike ride today and really happy to be a part of the podcast tonight. <laughs> well, we're uh, happy to have you. <laughs> So tonight's case is... <laughs> well, no, no, hold on. I, I mean, you guys, I mean, it's. I, I recognize that, that I've given a bit more information than I usually do, but wanted to let you know that went out and saw my grandson today in Langley, new grandson. That's great. So it, it's Congratulations. all good. What were yeah, they doing in it's Langley? It's all good. I mean, that's where they live. That's where he lives. And uh, I mean, it's he's brand new and I'm brand new to him. So... Yeah, it's a Whoa. beautiful day. Look at you, Barry. You're all you're full of vigor. You sound like you're. Uh, no, no, I'm mellow. Today, tonight, yeah, tonight I'm it. mellow. Yeah, I love it. I'm mellow, but <laughs> I want to just share with everybody some of the things that we talked about earlier, and that's that I heard from one of my patients the other day who was actually at a distance from Toronto when I was giving some results of her investigations, and she commented. She said, "You know, I've listened." to the podcast and I'm really interested, but she said, you know, you guys sound like car talk. And I just wanted to share that with you because I, I, I know Steph is really uh, in, interested in car talk and I have been, that's my favorite, that's my favorite radio program and my favorite podcast. And I was really, I felt really good. Wow. I think, uh, that is I think high praise. Close listeners would know that Steph, Steph is a big fan, a big fan yeah. of car talk. I'm a super fan. I drink from a um, Hardtalk that- mug every morning. <laughs> do, you, do you really? <laughs> yeah, I That's honestly awesome. do. <laughs> are you, are you uh, click or clack? Neither. But, you know, I think that it's maybe come up on the podcast before. It's such a great show. I think it's still in syndication. You can still listen to their episodes over pod, like on a podcast. But the, the people who I think should, like, I think it's a good show for everyone, especially if you're interested in car, like a car sort of basic maintenance and mechanics. But the people that I think should listen most closely to that show are like medical students just getting into learning how to talk to a patient. You know, I think we teach or the way that I teach it is like, you should start off with very open questions and let the patient talk for a while. And then most of the time they're going to tell you kind of what's going on. And then you ask more and more focused and pointed questions. And they do such a good example of that on that show. They're real mastery history takers. And obviously they know a ton about cards, but I think it's just, it's such a good example of how to take a history from a patient. Yeah. I I think that's a a really good point. Can I, can I support that? I actually think that one of their strengths besides their humor, which is really, I think, a big strength. One of their strengths is they actually listen to the question. And too often we decide what the question is, and then mm. we interpret their question as another question, and we're kind of way off base. And they listen to something that sounds so ridiculous at times that it doesn't, for, for the, un, the uninitiated and for the unsophisticated mechanic, you don't have no idea what they're talking about, but they listen to this bizarreness and they're able to put it into perspective. And I love it. You know, I, I think because we've talked about <laughs> car talk so much on this podcast, we may have to rebrand as 
like car talk talk or something <laughs> just to, <laughs> just us. <laughs> so yeah. along those lines though like tonight's a, a relatively short case actually so everyone can put their uh, pens and pencils down so before we actually get to the case then along the lines of podcasts i'm curious what what else you guys are listening to right now I mean, just before we leave the car talk thing, um, I'd like the idea of car talk talk. I wonder also about, you know, I've, I've thought this many times about renaming our podcast, you know, St. Paul's Morning Report podcast, a bit of a mouthful. I wonder if we have an opportunity here, like to, t- to call ourselves like body talk or like uh, med talk or case talk or something like that. Let's just sit with that idea for a little bit. But but I, if we can re- like align ourselves more closely with my heroes, uh, click and clack, that would be really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I I, th- I think probably this is a good crowdsource. So if any listeners have really good names um, for the podcast, then actually uh, great idea. Hit us up. Yeah, great, yeah. Sometimes great. I have a great idea. I like the idea. And actually, you know the the concept of car talk actually permeates much of the things that I think that I think about and how they how they treat the uh, the subject matter with sincerity, but mm-hmm. how they understand the. They create frivolousness, but they don't anoint frivolousness. So they don't recognize anything as a frivolous question. They mm-hmm. decide that they'll assign it, which is a which not to the person, but to the concept. And I, and it just it, it resonates with me every time I hear it. Totally. All right. Well, so I, I'm going to tell you what I'm listening to. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what I'm what what podcast I'm into right now. So not too long ago. I started listening to 99% Invisible again. I had listened to it a while ago and paused for whatever reason. And now I'm back listening to it. And I'm kind of like going through some old episodes. And it is it is so great. So anyone who doesn't listen to 99% Invisible is missing out. You are living a lesser life. Because it is it is like the perfect podcast. So that has been really high on my list. And a brand new podcast that I started listening to Oh, sorry. And just to explain, so 99% Invisible is about like, kind of like design and uh, the things that are kind of in front of you, but you don't really pay attention to like sidewalks or streetlights or stop signs, things in like everyday life that actually have like a rich history behind why it looks or functions the way it does. And it's so fascinating. They did did an eight part series on container shipping. (laughs) This is a few years ago. (laughs) And it was excellent. It was really, oh, really perfect. excellent. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to dig that one up. I haven't listened to that yet. Okay, enough enough for me. Anything else on, on your guys' list? Any other uh, recommendations? No, no. But can I comment, though? I haven't listened to that podcast, but I, th- I think to support our clinical reasoning is that oftentimes information that seems pedestrian is ignored to get onto the real issues, what we, we perceive, whoever the problem solvers are as the real issues. And I think, again, I've not listened to this podcast, but I think the issue is to, to go through the pedestrian component of the issues may be the real issues. And that what we assign as investigators as to what the issues are may have nothing to do with what really is happening. So I'm going to start listening to that. You should. It's so good. Okay. Penny, did you well, ever did you ever listen much to um, to Ezra Klein? Yeah. Oh my god. It, I I actually felt stupid listening to him because he's so smart. Um, he's so like smart. I, I often I, I I often find myself having trouble actually like following, not because he's not clear um, or tangential, but because I think like 
he understands the context of the things he's talking about so well. His interviews are so smooth. Uh, I think he's great. Yeah. He, he, a few weeks ago, he had Jeff Tweedy on. I don't know if, if you're a big music guy, but Jeff Tweedy was the, is the lead singer for Wilco. And, yeah. and they just did a, like an hour and a half sort of really interesting interview on creative endeavors on like, where does creativity come from and how does one sort of develop their own creativity and so on. It's oh, wow. really, that's a must listen. It's such a good, good show. And, and Ezra Klein is so smart and, and Jeff Tweedy is so smart and it's such a great conversation, you know, and, and to what Barry was saying, like, I think the other thing, you know, one of the reasons that I, I have a pretty varied podcast diet, as I know you do too, Danny, is the podcasts, they introduce me to things that I wouldn't otherwise just come across, you know? And, oh, yeah. and I think that they're make they're helping me to be, to, to focus on things that I really enjoy. Like I really enjoy fantasy football. That's something that I like. I like sports in general, but I listen to a varied list of podcasts because I think they're helping me to be a little bit more well-rounded. And I find it often helps in conversation with patients. You know, patients have all kinds of interests themselves. They're, you know, people totally. are, they, they have interesting jobs. They have interesting hobbies or whatever. And because I think of my varied podcast diet, it makes it a little easier for me to connect with people around things that they're interested in. I don't know if that's true, but I have the sense that that's true. Uh, you I, know, I Steph, I love that. I, I think that uh, what you're suggesting is we're talking about people who have interests and in, in, uh, be, beyond their presentations of illness with the, uh, the conscript of, of what an illness script looks like. And, and you're integrating that with their lives. And I, I think that's wonderful. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for today. So uh, thanks. Thanks very much for coming. I'm got to go home. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, let's dance, so, Danny. Yeah. Okay. D- yeah. You guys, you guys ready? Yeah. You let's you dance. Let's, let's shoes dance. On? Okay. Here we go. All right. So I'm presenting the, the case today. So this is Ms. Q. She is a uh, 60-something-year-old woman. She has a past medical history significant for lymphocytic colitis that was diagnosed in 2019. She's currently maintained in remission on mesalamine monotherapy. She also has coronary artery disease, had an end STEMI 2018. She has a benign positional vertigo and some GERD. Her only surgical history, no surgeries, but a colonoscopy 2019 for diagnosis of the colitis. And recently she's had a cystoscopy, which we'll, we'll get to. No important allergies. She was born in Canada, social alcohol use, no cannabis or smoking no recreational drugs, and uh, no recent travel, no pets at home. In terms of medication, she's on aspirin, she's on mesalamine, uh, bisoprolol, she's on dexalan, soprazole, and some nitro, uh, just just PRN. And she actually has a really elaborate family history. I won't give all of it because we're, you know, as always, we we try and keep uh, patient identifiers to a minimum, but this is perhaps relevant or you might, you might care about this. So um, she has two first-degree relatives with Sjogren's. She has one first-degree relative also apparently diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. She has two sisters with Hashimoto's, vitiligo, pernicious anemia, and Addison's, and one of whom is also diagnosed formally with MEN2. Oh, my God. Yeah, so Come lots, on. Of, lots, Come of autoimmune, on. <laughs> lots of autoimmune mischief in the family. So that's background. Does anyone have any questions so far before we get to the history? I don't know. I mean, I guess I have a few things that I'm that I've just jotted down. So obviously, like there's a significant history of there's there's a genetic history I'm really interested in. It sounds like uh, history, family history of autoimmunity or more specifically connective tissue disease. So I'm going to 
park that. I'm going to highlight it. I haven't even heard what this thing's complaint is yet, but I, <laughs> I'm going to highlight it. And, yeah. and the MEN is also really interesting. And so I'm going to park that. And then I also, and it probably has no bearing on the case, but this lady has coronary disease with an MI and is not on a statin and is not on an ACE inhibitor. And who knows why that is, but yeah, I just, I'm going to park that as well. Fair enough. And can I comment? I'm not commenting at all on the content because I think the content is excellent. But this presentation. (laughs) Thanks, Barry. Well, no, no. But this presentation is representative to me of no anchoring. You know, I'm going to talk to you about a fisherman who went out on his boat. There was a storm. He uh, was off Vancouver Island. He lost his fish. His radio went out. And I'm going to talk to you about the fact that his shoes are brown. That's why he's come in because he doesn't like brown shoes. And, and and part of what I've heard today and what I continue to hear from the UBC presentation is this significant information or insignificant information about past history and social history and all of these things with no ability to anchor what the complaint is. So I, I try to contain all that information. I don't know how to attach that information to anything that I'm going to be start to be trying to solve. Oh, this is so interesting, Barry. So when I hear, I think I've just become accustomed to this style of presentation. I think, yeah. And obviously, I'm not, I'm not criticizing Danny because he's a staff, no, 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 excellent staff rheumatologist. But, but I, I think, I think this, all of this background stuff to me represents like a frame, like a picture frame, and it shows me sort of the the boundaries of what is likely to be the the problem that we're going to hear about and so if someone if a trainee was going to present to me like danny just has i would provide them with the feedback that it helps me if at the very 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 beginning you tell me who this person is and why they came to seek medical attention and then your job i think even before i hear the history of present illness is to tell me like the relevant historical things about them but really try to stick to the relevant things and then tell me the history. So I actually do like having all this information up front, but it does help me to make sense of all this information if you can also first tell me what their presenting complaint is. That, that, and that and that exactly, that's what I'm trying to communicate is that, I mean, if you tell me that I'm having trouble tying my shoelace, I hear this information very differently than if you say, you know, my eyes turn purple. I, I, I don't, so, and this is not you, Danny. This is like, forever and ever and ever. And I spend almost every day, if I don't say it, I think, of, and I have no idea how to attach on this information. So anyway, we'll hear the case, but I, I guess I'm emphasizing a point that is really not about this case. So so for the, for the learners who are listening to this, maybe give us a hand as people who are reviewing cases with you and tell us the chief complaint right off the top and then the his, relevant historical things and then the history. Is that how you like to hear Danny or... Uh, I usually like to hear like why they were referred. Yeah, yeah. But I, I certainly have had a number of of trainees kind of give the big preamble that includes a bit of past medical history, a bit of medications, a bit of this and that as framing. And I see the appeal, but I actually find it a bit confusing. So of course, you guys are right. I should have told you why the person was referred. But I actually like things kept in their boxes, and it's the assessment where I want your synthesis. That's right. Um, yeah. Of information. I think like it's, it's all preference and it's all pattern of practice, but it, you're, you're absolutely right. Reason for referral that goes up top. 
So, so what is what's the chief complaint here? <laughs> chief complaint here is hematuria and a positive MPO. <laughs> okay. All right. So the so, cystoscopy so now... all of a sudden gets gets highlighted twice, <laughs> um, and the MPO. So so then like that history of autoimmunity is important. I actually don't have a good good handle on. I, I didn't. I, I couldn't write down all those connective tissue disease autoimmunity things. And yeah. and of what I did write down. I don't have a good handle on whether any of those is uh, related to vasculitis. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to have to either hear Can some more of that again or whatever. But, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, and, and just for listeners, so big big ticket items were Sjogren's, Rheumatoid, Hashimoto's, Vitiligo, Pernicious Anemia, Addison's. All right, so now that um, I've been... Sorry, sorry. You Danny, guys have... Can you remind us how old a patient is? 60. 60s. 50, thank you. Yeah. 60s. So 60s. now okay. that I've had to uh, staff internists spank my bottom, we're going to uh, continue with the case. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> so, so here's the history. So uh, this is, yeah, this is kind of framing stuff. But in 2000, year 2000, uh, she had an episode of hematuria that occurred uh, during an associated UTI. She was treated with antibiotics. The hematuria completely resolved and did not recur. She was otherwise largely well. 2018, she had the NSTEMI. 2019, she was diagnosed with lymphocytic colitis on biopsy. She's followed by an excellent gastroenterologist, and she did remit on monotherapy misalamine, and she continues that. She's been mostly well in the interval. And then in January 2021, she developed some fairly mild, not too troublesome, right flank pain, more of an annoyance than something that she was really seeing her doctors about, but she does report it on history. But what really bothered her was that in January 2021, she had an episode of hematuria. So this occurred in the morning and then cleared um, later in the day. She she sees it, Danny? or or, Yeah, uh, she she sees it, yeah. Gross hematuria. Yeah. She sees her GP. They do a urinalysis that shows positive for leukocyte esterase no blood on the dip. And she's treated with antibiotics. There's no immediate recurrence and she feels fine. The The flank pain is unchanged and it's more of a discomfort than, than true pain. In February, so a month later, she has a recurrence of the hematuria and she has a repeat urinalysis on the same day. And it is again clear, there's no blood in it. She has a couple white blood cells, but otherwise nothing. On the basis of the reported complaint of gross hematuria. She's seen by a urologist who does a cystoscopy, which is normal, a renal ultrasound, a CTKUB, and those are normal as well. In April, so again, a month after that, she has another recurrence. She has gross hematuria, but her urinalysis and micro are clear. And at this point, some some outpatient blood work is sent. And I'm wondering, maybe I'll stop right here because I think you guys probably have a lot to say. And I'd like to hear your thoughts. And the episode in April, she had flank pain as well? The flank pain is totally not at all timed with the the, uh, episodes of hematuria. So the flank pain seems to be kind of a chronic, constant, bothersome discomfort. It's along the right flank, but there were no stones identified when she had um, ultrasound or CT. And and Danny, the flank pain starts when she has her symptoms or starts or, or is there independent? Totally independent. Okay, thanks. And and just just for clarity, so I think this is like this is how the case presented. But you know, the patient was wondering if the flank pain was kidney stones, but it didn't seem to like come and go. It didn't change when the hematuria cleared. 
Right. It's just essentially it constant. just was there. It, it yeah. that was the persistent symptom, but but, yeah, but just also, as you pointed out, like I said, on the mild side, and did require a little bit of pulling it out of her, kind of dragging that that story out of like, oh, are you right flank pain? That sounds really really important. So she's less troubled by it than she is by all this blood that that uh, she sees in the urine. So and her and her urine is like, red. Oh, a hundred percent red. She has photos of it. It's clearly red, mm. no doubt at all. So, so Danny, just to help us, so when she's objectively observed during these periods, she has red cells in her urine or she has no red cells in her urine? She has no hemoglobin or red cells on the urinalysis that's done, but the urine that she's giving them is not red. She has red urine that morning, and then she'll go to the lab that afternoon, give some urine, and it's totally clear. Okay. She sees, she, she's the one that's reporting the red, the red urine. Is that correct? Yep. She has photos and it is just... Right. Got it. What Got it. Classic looking hematuria. Okay. So... Okay. I think we're... So are we talking about an approach to this problem now or do you want to just tell us some more stuff? Why, why don't you guys tell me what's on your mind? Uh, maybe give me a bit of an approach here. So I, I'd like to think of causes of gross hematuria. So and I think this is a little tricky because I sometimes think about it in terms of do they have symptoms or no symptoms? And that that sort of makes me think about whether it's likely to be sort of stone disease or not. And then I also think about, in this case, it's coming and going. So I want to think about things that can come and go. You know, like Mm -hmm. if she had, for example, tumor in her kidney or ureter or bladder, I wouldn't expect to see hematuria in January and no hematuria in February and March and then hematuria again in April. Maybe that can happen, but that doesn't sound right to me. Either way, mm-hmm. she's going to get a pretty detailed look, like workup for malignancy with, with, in her case, she's had a cystoscopy. She's already been pretty well imaged and she's had urine cytologies probably, or if not, she's going to get them soon. I would be thinking about, yeah, so tumors, are you bleeding somewhere in the kidney, like from a non-cancer cause, like glomerular something or other, IgA nephropathy, which can come and go, obviously. And then talked about stones. And then, I mean, infection. Yeah, I don't know. Could be an infection. One time, I get you had flank pain, but no dysuria, right? That's right. It, no urinary symptoms whatsoever. And the, the flank discomfort is chronic, doesn't change. They're all the time no difference during urination not there's no clear activity of her colitis either so there's no mucus blood in the stool no diarrhea no change in bowel habits no abdominal discomfort no uh, dietary issues um, no weight loss how long has she been on the misalamine um, she's been on that for since 2018 or sorry 2019 when she was diagnosed so two years now I have like a very short list of medications that can cause hematuria but that's or, or can cause like red discoloration of the urine but that's not mm-hmm one of them. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think I've said all the things that I, I would be thinking about at this point. I mean, I think a, any, like a, a, renal, a renal infarct, I think can do that. But again, I don't know why this woman would have that. Yeah. I don't know. Barry, what do you think? I concur with what you're saying, Steph, but the, the only, uh, the thing that keeps bouncing around in my mind is that we're saying she has hematuria, but we haven't actually demonstrated it. We've demonstrated, or she, she said she has red urine, but those things that would we would say is our hematuria, she doesn't have. She doesn't have hemoglobin and she doesn't have red cells. So something's making her urine red and something's making her, giving her flank pain. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to be 
I have no, I mean, I have some thoughts, but I mean, I have no, yeah, that's where I'm at. I just, I would say, what the hell is causing her red urine? I hope it's so, beets. So I hope Barry, it's beets. Have... I hope it's beets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so it, 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 cert- it certainly may be beets, but I'm just saying that's, that's where I'm at. So I think actually there's a through line between the podcast that uh, we, we mentioned at the beginning and what we were talking about initially and what you said now, which is that the patient did not complain of hematuria. They complained of red urine or what they thought was bloody urine. And yeah. you're saying that you reject the label up front. You say, like, we, we don't know that there's hematuria. We don't know that there's blood. We've actually never seen that. Um, what we have seen is, is red urine. And so you we haven't are even seen taking that. a step back. Right. Sorry. She she shows you pictures, um, but you're right. They, uh, you, you've not seen it in person. Yeah. And the things that we've looked at that we would associate with red urine doesn't conform to what we would initially think is mm-hmm. blood in your urine. Sure. So how about uh, we go fishing? So she has some labs done, and I'm going to give you uh, some of the, the initial results. So this is what was done in April. CBC differential are normal. Uh, urinalysis and microscopy is clear. She has a positive ANA at 1 in 80, and an MPO, which is an ANCA, that is weekly positive at 1.9. Anything else that you guys want to send? I... So the things that I would, uh, I would ask <laughs> for is I, I would like to know her serum sodium. Uh, normal. Okay, why, did you you. Ask for that? why did you say that? Well, there's an association with porphyria in SIADH and the discoloration of her urine. And she's got flank pain and discolored urine. And I'm just trying to uh, put it together. I mean, there's other reasons, but that was one of the things I thought about. Thinking outside the box. You know how, um, I don't know how you feel, Barry, but I've often kind of lamented the 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 name of our specialty, general internal medicine, like it really isn't that descriptive. It's hard for people to understand what that is. And for for 15 years now, I've been looking for like a 15 second canned description of what I do to, that I could explain to my mom what it is that I do. It's uh, really hard to do. <laughs> and, right. and I think, you know, I know used to say, ah, oh, we deal with complex disease and multi-morbid things. And there's, you know, there's outpatients. There's, it's very confusing what we do. I think probably now 20 or 25% of what I do is helping people to interpret labs that they ordered that they can't understand the results of. That's um, really that's interesting. Now a, it's a full probably quarter of what I do. And this would be a kind of patient that I would end up seeing for sure. And mm-hmm. like the positive ANA, sometimes with a positive something or else, something else and whatever, and a CRP of four, and you're like, oh, what do you do with this? Ugh. So, So one in 80, I would have a good think on whether they had any other sign of connective tissue disease but this isolated red urine i i don't know it doesn't it's not on my list of like common features of connective tissue disease and then the weekly positive mpo similarly i, I don't know what to do with that either nothing else that this this lady has told me about like smells of vasculitis so i i'm I parked those for now, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't do a whole lot with them. I'm still curious why her urine is red, but I, I don't. I don't. I think these things are true, true, and unrelated. I think she has red urine and a positive ANA, and I don't think that they're related. Mm-hmm. I, I, all I, I can say, uh, Steph, is is you can't beat that because you raised you raised the issue of beats, and I, I have to admit that. <laughs> There he is. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure that you're incorrect. Maybe I take a dietary history. Good, good, good point. So, so what do you want to know from diet? Does she eat beets? She has, on occasion, eaten a beet. 
That's pretty cagey. What, on occasion, she's eaten a beet, and does that correlate to her red urine? Unrelated in timing to the red urine. Okay. Um, other things that, that um, about diet that we asked, so she eats normal quantities of blueberries, raspberries, anything that's red <laughs> in color. She doesn't, she, she's, um, she's not eating anything in, quote, weird amounts. So there, there's nothing there that uh, was, was striking. Sounds like a, a fairly standard North American diet. <laughs> is she, this is again, like I, I, another, another part of the definition that I offer for internal medicine, general internal medicine is that I'm an above the belt specialist. So I'm going to sort of go out of my depth here, but is she, she's not having vaginal bleeding by any chance. Like this isn't coming. I don't even know why I'm so asking says, that. I don't, I don't even no, know. What what you're asking it when she has no blood. Yeah, yeah, she has no know. blood. I mean, unless she, unless she, her vagina yeah. is different than everybody else's, yeah. it's not. Yeah. I don't, I don't even it's know. Not why helpful. Yeah. No, it's. A, I, I think it is a good question because we're still like. It, I, I would say like along the line of your thinking, where you're like, well, we haven't confirmed that there's blood, so it's not hematuria yet, but something's turning her red, her, her urine red. I guess mm-hmm. part of that thinking would also be like, well, is is there something that's interfering with the test? Like it is hematuria, but something's right. interfering with the dip. But we're right. not even seeing red blood cells on microscopy. Um, so I, I, I see your point. Yeah, I, I still think that, like, reasonable question. She does not report any bleeding. And I'm going to get into some of the bonus questions in a bit, like the specific weird stuff that that we asked. <laughs> I'm just going to fill you in on the labs to get you up to speed as to when I saw her. So, so she did have more extensive labs sent. So again, CBC differential lights, extended lights, including calcium, magphos, liver enzymes, TSH, CK, C3 and 4, B12, ferritin, hepatitis B, C, HIV, and syphilis, antiphospholipids were all normal or negative. She had another urinalysis that showed a few white blood cells. Um, the ENA on the ANA came back, showing that there was a positive RNP. The remainder mm-hmm. was negative. Her MPO was still positive. It was 4.8. Her PR3 was negative. RF was slightly elevated. The rheumatoid factor was 14. And the CCP was negative. So that's kind of at this point is when I, I get involved. But, but, and, but what I could say is from what your description is that you, you give us a description if she has Sjogren's and there's not, it's not primary or secondary. You haven't told us that, but in you're describing a, a number of antibodies, but it doesn't really solve the problem of what, of red urine and flank pain. Mm-hmm. You're saying she has Sjogren's? Well, that's what we were told. I I, I said RNP is uh, is positive at seven point seven. Sort of that mixed. Yeah, I'm sorry, Danny, Did Sjogren's. you not say that she had Sjogren's? No, family member has Sjogren's. Oh, a family member has Sjogren's. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so so maybe I'll fill so, in a little bit more. It's a, the, the reason for the referral. The reason for the referral to you was: Can you help us it sort was, out these serologies? It was hematuria with positive serologies. Mm-hmm. How often do you see that referral? Um, that's not that's not crazy infrequent. I would say it would be extremely really? infrequent that the hematuria you can never get a positive dip and no protein, no change in the kidney function. So I thought like, oh, that's a that's a weird one. So it's happy to see that. But I so so first thing that we did was Barry style kind of went back and and kind of clarified pieces of the history. So. In the interval, she's being investigated by some other doctors. She's having ongoing recurrent episodes of morning-only red urine. It occurs <laughs> about once every two to six weeks. The most quantity of it is on first urination, 
and then there's some fading on subsequent urinations, or it disappears after the first episode. Hmm. And occasionally, if she leaves it in the bowl, she actually sees precipitate at the bottom. Hmm. So now we get into, so, so that's the history that we elicited. And then we asked a bunch of bonus questions that have nothing to do with my job at all, but I think are just like anyone would be curious about these questions. So I think any doctor could ask these. This is not rheumatology specific. Should I fill you in on info or you guys want to ask random weird questions to me? Uh, I'm happy just to hear what, what you asked. Okay. Bonus question. So when she has hematuria or red, red urine, there is no blood on the toilet paper when she wipes. She did recently change brand of misalamine to a long acting form, but there was no change in the frequency or episodes of hematuria. That was her only medication change. She she's never noticed red urine in any toilet other than her own. Uh, there is construction Who across the street. <laughs> Me. <laughs> There's construction across the street. Who asked her that? Well, I'll finish that thought. There's construction across the street, which can cause the wa- water outages, but the water quality seems okay. There's not been any weird leakage into the water, or changing color of the water. There's no problems in the neighborhood with water quality. And she has used the same brand of toilet bowl cleaner with no change. Danny, I have this to, is rust. I, I am in, I, I am, in, I am in awe of those questions. <laughs> I have to rust. admit, this is rust. I, 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 I have to admit, in all of the many years that I've practiced, I've never really asked about toilet bowl cleaner or construction across the street. I think it's wonderful. Well, then you haven't seen a patient look at you like you're an insane person. Um, so, so, so full disclosure, actually, I think credit where it's due is this is a patient that I was actually seeing with uh, one of my rheumatology fellows, Drew Bowie, who also did an excellent job um, helping to investigate this person. Okay. So well, let, I guess let, me, let me give you some additional labs then. So, so can I just pause for a second? So a lot of these, these wacky questions, they must originate with the doubt that this is real hematuria, right? Correct. Okay, so, so you're saying so to yourself, essentially, there's that, some other exactly redness right. in this lady's. There's some other redness in this lady's toilet water, and you're trying to figure out not why her urine is red, but why her toilet water is red. That's right. So I, I <laughs> think that that's exactly right. So I, I, I think it. that I think Barry was was totally on the money in the first place, kind of saying like, "Well, does she have hematuria? All you know is that her urine's red." And I really did think about. Barry and, and Steph, both of you, when, when I saw this case, because when I was just like looking through the material, and even one of the other doctors, I think even the urologist the first time had noted like hematuria, but persistently negative dips. And, yeah, right. and so like, I think like, when I saw it, I'm like, Oh, like, that's weird. And the other weird part is let let's just say it is real. So it's real hematuria. It's been going on since January, I saw them in June, July. If this was MPO positive vasculitis, it's just like not that insidious a disease. Like often people mm-hmm. have progressive disease, they develop other yeah. symptoms. So from a natural history perspective, what what are we even talking about? There's no protein, there's no change in kidney function, and we've mm-hmm. not seen a single red blood cell. That's a really weird story. So I think kind of based on that, we kind of came into the consult being like, okay, let's look back at every urinalysis that we can on this woman, including ones that predate the red urine to see like, has she ever had blood in her urine? Have we ever seen it before? And then have a really good look through her history for other things that could be contributing. So that was kind of like the frame with which we came to the consult was, man, what on earth could turn your urine red? And how can we prove that? 
I, I, I agree entirely, but I, I really, I think the questions about construction across the street and all these other, I think there's, maybe we'll learn about this, but oh my God, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll give you some additional labs then. So we repeat labs and her MPO remains elevated. In fact, it's quite elevated. It's, it's greater than eight. So that is definitely there. Her PR3 is still negative. Her RF is stable, just barely positive uh, or borderline at 14. Her CRP is normal. Her urinalysis is again negative. She has PNH testing, Coombs test, smear, which are all normal. Her bilirubin and haptoglobin are normal. She has urine, porphyrin, and porphobilinogen. And um, a CT chest is pending based on the presence of the MPO, which can be associated with ILD. So that, that is not back yet, but... But so we filled in some of the labs, including some that you were interested in. So I'm, I'm yeah. going to, so what, what we did was kind of what Steph often says, which is like, hey, why, why like try and do this solo? Why don't you type it into Google and see what you can find or check up to date or check a primary resource? So we looked up heme negative red urine. And there is actually a nice table in up to date. And I, I'm just going to read through a couple of things. So medications, food dyes and metabolites are kind of the big categories. On the list of medications included nothing that she's on, so just a couple here, doxorubicin, chloroquines, ibuprofen, nitrofurantoin, rifampin. In terms of food dyes, beets, blackberries, food coloring. Uh, in terms of metabolites, so bile pigment, melanin, methemoglobin, porphyrin, urates. There's more that you can that you can check out there, but that list actually didn't yield an answer to the problem. So what we did at that point was we, we again went back to Google and, and tried to look this up and we kind of went through all of her medications and tried to find one that could be a culprit. And here's what we found. So there are two publications that we found that were maybe of relevance. So one is a letter to the editor in 2013, a 16-year-old with ulcerative colitis in remission on mesalamine for about three years reported two separate episodes of red-brown appearing urine with normal <laughs> microscopy. Patient noticed urine changed color on hitting the water. So he also noted that the toilet had recently been cleaned with bleach containing sodium hypochlorite and confirmed by mixing urine directly oh, with bleach Jesus. that it turns red. Oh the second God. very similar case in a 38-year-old uh, sorry, it was a two case report set in, in the same publication, 38 year old and 36 year old 2016, both were taking slow release mesalamine. So all of this needs, you know, this is a possibility. But you know, what about side effects from mesalamine? Infrequently, it can be associated with AKI, interstitial nephritis, uh, frank renal failure, renal stones, and ulcerative colitis has been associated periodically with renal stones as well. So sulfasalazine separate to that can actually just turn the urine uh, red brown color. So that would be visibly red or brown as it comes out, not just when it hits the bowl. And so that's a question that we asked. We said, does it actually come out red? <laughs> and she actually didn't know. And, or and how so, would she know? Right, exactly. Unfair questions, but we thought we'd ask anyways. So, so we actually asked her to go home. Oh, sorry, before I get to that, th there was actually, interestingly, so there's a patient forum that I found, uh, microsandcolitisteam.com. And dated over five years ago, a reposted letter, which details this exact same problem. Hmm. So returning to the case, we asked her to go home and collect urine in a cup and also try and midstream switch to the toilet. And the urine in the cup was normal coloration. Yeah. Midstream, she switches to the toilet and it's dark red in the bowl. Hmm. 
So, so and, you and think that a, there may be something in within the bowl that turns their urine red when it contacts mesalamine? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, of course, wow. none of this explains the positive MPO. So that is a, a finding, and she does have the frank, the flank discomfort. Yeah, or but the flank discomfort. Of, yeah. Yeah. So, so those are still like things that require follow up. But in terms of the referral for a positive MPO, which we only found because she was being investigated for hematuria, yeah. Yeah. I would say this person has no hematuria, or we've certainly not proven that there's hematuria. And we actually have pretty good evidence that there's probably some kind of reaction going on. We actually think that it's she uses uh, periodically uses a VIM as a cleaner. We actually think it's probably that. And she, she did confirm that there is hypo, sodium hypochlorite um, in, her, um, in her VIM. So that's what wow. we, we actually think is going on. And I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. I think that's a really, that's, uh, I, I'm really impressed with the, the search for how to assess this. I, I would add to this that she probably has a wallet that she uses um, on her right flank, which is causing her pain. And, <laughs> yeah. and the dryness to her eyes and mouth are probably irrelevant at this point to the red urine, but maybe relevant to her serology steph what's uh what you got that is some like sherlock holmes level sleuthing right that's <laughs> i mean if you can that's what is that that's um oh boy i'm gonna butcher this thing but coke triad like you have the thing and then you produce the symptoms and you take away the thing and then the symptoms go away so you have to be able to reproduce it and it sounds like you sent her home and you can reproduce the the phenomenon and you can't reproduce it in any other toilet. So uh, yeah, you've got it, it. it's never been reproduced in another toilet. Yeah. So if you can get her to stop using a particular cleaner and then have her pee into her toilet and that thing doesn't happen again, and then use the go back to using the vim and have her produce red pee again, then you've got your answer. Like that's that's very clever. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so, so back to kind of like the like how we actually approach this problem. Like we've talked about this before, that like we took a patient's complaint and we turned it into medical language, and in doing that, we actually lost some resolution of what the actual problem was. Right? We we actually anchored not diagnostically per se, but actually just in our language. I think um, early on in the case, so we have found random antibodies in her blood in a person with a family history of random autoimmune diseases, that's important and requires its separate workup. But I, I think it has little to do with the red urine. I think that we probably have a good answer to that. I thought that the midstream switching over was as good an answer as we we're going to get for that. But I do think yeah. that like there's probably a lesson here in, in, in probably like patient complaint and being careful when we translate that into our own language that we, we may lose something. Well, I want to emphasize what you've just said is I, I actually think it's it's an absolute we actually we listen with an ear of editorializing information that we put into our own packages that may actually not represent what the problem is and i think that you've illustrated this with this case is red urine equal to materia and i think that uh, therein lies the problem uh, totally. I mean, if we had, if somebody had said red urine equals beets, we'd be investigating something else. So I, I think that's really, really, really valid. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think with an MPO in the background, yes, that, you know, there is some light evidence that that is actually a pathogenic um, antibody. So it's not to be taken with a grain of salt, like we should pay attention to it now that it's been found, now that it's elevated. I couldn't find great evidence that it 
attacks well with activity of colitis. But in terms of flank pain with a positive MPO that actually seems to have a rising titer, I would say it's it's more likely to be pretty much anything else other than active MPO vasculitis. I think that's probably a biomarker of something else. And I Can think I say one sure other thing, uh, Danny, because I think that you've actually illustrated it again with the same sort of information that you, or the same sort of anchoring that we did with the hematuria, and that we said flank pain. If you said, uh, if you described this as something different, you, you described it, I don't know, pain in the side or, or whatever, mm-hmm. just using the word flank raises another, is the same sort of using the word hematuria. That, that, I, totally, totally. Also, if I said abdominal pain, I, yes. I think we probably would have been having a lot more early conversation about like yeah. bowel movements and, and her colitis and colonoscopy, as opposed to flank pain, which we really think of as, as very much a kidney problem. Right. And and I think that that's the, your, this was just another, this is a secondary illustration of the same problem that you were highlighting. I think it's great. I feel like we <laughs> we've done a couple of cases on this podcast that are like, people or things turning different colors. <laughs> like, I think one of our first podcasts was um, uh, someone who was like blue colored. And I, I don't think we actually had a good solution to that one. But um, well, that was your case. And and, uh, <laughs> and I'm still waiting to, to the, the rest of us that were on that podcast didn't have any idea in the first place. And we were waiting for the second place. So that's not our problem. That's your problem. I mean, our problem is that just the one you illustrated, I think I think it's a great example. I think just using word the words the words mean so much. Mm-hmm. It's, it reminds me right. a little bit of a case, and now I'm going to do this very old person thing and tell a story. I'm sure I've already told here <laughs> before, but I was on service at Vancouver General. This was probably ten years ago, and we were asked to see a man who had presented, and he he had a fall at home, and the trauma team had seen him overnight because he presented with cyanosis of the lower extremities and they were worried that he'd had some long bone fractures or whatever. He had a trauma mm-hmm. survey. Everyone had come and seen him. He had CAT scans literally from his heels to his, to his skull and everything was normal. And he, it was more impressive is that he looked fine. He looked completely well. And, <laughs> and so the team had done some things. They did some blood gases and this and that. And honestly, every test on the guy was, was normal. And so I came in in the morning and I saw this patient and he was still in the trauma bay at, at BGH. And, and sure enough, his legs were really blue. Like they were, they were blue for sure, but he looked really well. And so on closer inspection, I was just like, these are, these are unnaturally blue. They're not, there is no physiological <laughs> problem that causes legs to change this color. And so I just went and got an alcohol wipe from the, from like the you know, little nursing station. And I, and I wiped a streak down his leg pants. and it was just from yeah. his jeans. He'd had, he'd bought new jeans yeah. in the last week or something. Yeah. And so, you know, he probably, they threw like $10,000 worth of investigations at this guy right. whose legs were blue because he'd recently purchased new jeans. How'd, well, how'd they look? No. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> yeah. very boxy. Cyanosis becomes cyanora in this, yeah. in this situation. And I, I totally, I, I have to admit that uh, we've all fallen into that trap. I have to, one, one of the, just in self-disclosure, I once investigated someone for pale gums mm. uh, because, but it didn't match anything else. And then when the person took their teeth out to show <laughs> me their gums, <laughs> I, uh, I said, oh, okay, Ooh, <laughs> well, maybe okay. we'll do something else. Well, I'm just saying in, in, uh, in self-disclosure, I don't think yeah. it's unique to anybody. Oh, I agree. I agree. That's funny. Yeah, good right. case. Wow. Danny, that's a great case. 
Thank Glad you. Glad you guys liked it. Well, thanks for uh, chatting today. Nice talking to you both. All right. Take care, you guys. Bye, all. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We are produced by Nikki Thorpe of Bronick Consulting. Our show notes are thoughtfully prepared by Jeffrey Yi. We are supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, and we will catch you next time. Take care.